The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Welcome to The Adventure Jogger, everybody. Jeff Stafford hanging out in the kitchen. Good evening. Uh, By the way, Jeff is the first official member of the Silver Singles Trail and Ultra Running Team. That's right. They're finally the Silver Singles dating site for seniors is yeah. trying to get into the trail scene. That that's pretty impressive, Jeff. I'm so proud of you for that. That big that's a that's a big step for you. And and next week I will truly become a senior. Is next week your birthday? Next, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. How old are you? So you're 60? 87. <laughs> <laughs> your Medicare kicks in right. next week? 65. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yep. But thanks yeah. for joining us, everybody. And I think when, if I say wine and trail running, <laughs> where, where do you go, Jeff, when I say that? Probably the other way, me, but I'm just not that big of a wine drinker. That's just, that's well, just me. I think of you whining on the trail. Oh, well, there's that. Which you've yeah. done before. Yeah. yeah. But we're not talking about that type of whining that Jeff does when he doesn't want to eat a goo, but he has to because he hasn't uh. had any calories for hours. We're talking about the wine, the sipping, Real wine. The sipping wine. So we are going to do this entire podcast with our pinkies in the air because we have a great guest that has fused the world of ultra trail running, adventure running, and wine. He's responsible for the Drinking and Knowing Thing newsletter and book, Wine and Running. We're talking wine and running, everybody. Get ready. Mike Jurgen is our guest on the Adventure Jogger. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You have a lot of stuff to unpack here. There is a lot to Mike Jurgen. Let's let's start before we get into the wine aspect of it, which by the way, uh, we are not drinking wine tonight. We are drinking Bud Heavies. Um, so we're, we're all out of wine at the house. I was going to have a little sip in, in your in your honor, Mike, now, but what? I I have to ask Mike this. Okay. I Alizé, you've heard of Alizé before, right? Sure. Is is what exactly is that? Is that a wine? Is that a liqueur? What is Alizé? I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I had a whole bottle. I could have brought. I think over. I had Alizé like maybe twice in my life. Uh, I think it's a liqueur. Um, but I, I, if you were to ask me what's in, I have no idea. Like, I know it tastes like shit. So it's <laughs> so it's so it's not a wine. Well, it's definitely not a wine. It could be um, it could be a distillate product made from grapes, like brandy and cognac is a okay. distillate product that's made from grapes. Gotcha. Um, so it could have started as life as a wine. Um, and but something went wrong I, with it after that, yeah. <laughs> something went horribly <laughs> awry. <laughs> All right, Mike, let's start with your running story. How did you discover the world of running, trail running, adventure running? Let's start there. Yeah, so I, my first marathon that I ran, um, I was like maybe 22, so just a couple years ago. Uh, <laughs> just like me. So you don't laugh that hard, right? when I say that well, shit. You know, you got, you, got, you got a lot of, you got you have um, distinguished gray is what I would say. I could, I could be a member of the Silver Singles just based on yes. hair color alone. Yes. 
Um, yeah, so I, I was, uh, at the time I was doing like a lot of, uh, athletic types of endeavors Yeah. and, um, the LA marathon was that weekend. Yeah. Um, and my friend and I were sitting around, it was like maybe Wednesday and I was like, you know what, dude, we should go run the LA marathon. And he's like, can we do that? And I go, we can do whatever we want to do. We're 22 years old. You know? <laughs> So we, uh, we basically last minute signed up and went down and ran it. And, um, it was, you know, both extremely rewarding and also extraordinarily painful. Quite eye opening. Um, yeah. It was very eye opening. Yeah. And, uh, I literally, I, I didn't train for it at all. I, I did nothing. And, um, and like, then I couldn't walk for like the next four days, but I finished and I was like, huh, okay, there's something here. Yeah. Uh, I don't quite know what it is, but there's something here. And then I, you know, as, as I, as life went on, I occasionally, um, ran additional marathons as the opportunity came up. Um, mm -hmm. like one year, my firm sponsored the Boston marathon. And so they, we got some, some, uh, some extra spots and I was like, I'm going to do that just so I can say I did it. Cause yeah, there's no right. way I could ever qualify <laughs> to run the Boston marathon. Um, so I just kind of picked up a handful of, of marathons over the years. And then, they began to get a little boring. Um, yeah. You know, you run around a city and you do a marathon with the same folks, you know, and it's the same sort of thing. And I was like, there's got to be cooler shit to do than this. Oh, for sure. And yeah. that's when I started trying to find the weird runs, the weird races. And that's kind of how it started. What was the first weird race, quote unquote, weird race that you found? Antarctica. Antarctica. That that's not you. You have to really Google for that. And this was before Google. How the hell did you find out about a race in Antarctica? So uh, one of my buddies is a, is an author, and um, and he had been wanting to go to Antarctica, um, just as like a goal. And so he found the race. And and you know, there's a couple different races in Antarctica. There's there's races on the islands, mm -hmm. um, and then there's one race that's held actually on the continent itself. And so people debate whether or not the islands count for our purposes. We were going into the interior of the continent, like down near the South pole. Cause Antarctica is big. It's like the size of Australia. Yeah. Um, it doesn't look like it on the map, but right. it's massive. And so, so anyway, so he found this race and he sent out an email to, uh, to a group of us was like, I want to do this race. Who wants to go? And I'm like, I'm in hundred percent. You don't have to convince me I'm in. And then everybody backed out except <laughs> me and two other guys. So it usually goes, yeah. <laughs> so, but I was like, I'm going. Like, I don't care if everybody backs out. I'm doing this thing. And so that was the first weird one. And we did it on the Union Glacier, which is this like 12 mile long glacier in the middle of nowhere. And you basically just crash land a jet onto the glacier because there's nothing to yeah. hit. And you just kind of skid around for miles. And then you hop out and you run a marathon. Let's run 26 miles. <laughs> So yeah. that that creates a whole separate group of challenges here because I'm sure that the local 4H club does not have an aid station set up at mile three, and no. then and then the 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 local church group doesn't have an aid station set up three miles later. You are pretty much running on your own in one of the coldest places on planet Earth. Yep. And it was when we, the, the year I ran it, it was uh, about negative 30 with about 50 mile an hour winds. And it was, um, 
it started snowing and you couldn't see anything. And there was one period of time where it was about 90 minutes where I would, I got lost because I couldn't find the trail mm-hmm. or the little, I say trail, not even a trail, like this little place where we're supposed to run. And I was, I thought there was a reasonable chance I was going to die. And like very reason. At one point I, I pulled my balaclava off and I just started screaming at the universe. Like, I'm not going out like this. And like <laughs> my face with my whole body was shutting down and I was getting, I'm like, I'm not do or die. Like literally do or die. Like, you know, you hit the do or die moment in a, yeah. in a marathon, yeah. but there's always the safety net that you're like, ah, I'll just quit. The, the safety guys will be along. And I'm like, no, this was like, I'm, even if I could push the alert button for the black helicopters to come in, it's two days before they get there. You know, it was <laughs> do or die, literally, and I, I did. Wow, <laughs> it was pretty gnarly. Yeah, that's incredible. Actually, there, there is, I, I use this analogy oftentimes. You know, when you give like public speeches and they tell you to start with a joke or a story. This is a, yeah. an analogy I've used a couple times, but. I'm a California boy. I'm not used to cold. So I had all the wrong gear and my goggles froze over and I couldn't see. And so my, my whole way I was running was there was this little trench in the ground that they had driven a snowmobile on that you could stay in the trench. And I was like, stay in the trench, but I couldn't see. So I would just run in one direction until I slammed into a snowbank and fell down. And then I would pick myself up and I'd like look around and find it. And then I would run another 50 yards or however long it took. And, and uh, I literally like ran by Braille to try to accomplish this. Um, so you were just, finally, you were literally bracketing the race, just kind of like pinging around. So I ran, I ran, it was only a marathon, but I ran an ultra. Right. <laughs> I think I put it about 40 miles that day. Sure. <laughs> God bless. Uh, I made it to, there was, they have a couple of aid stations set up on the route and I made it to one of them. And I told the the girl that was manning, I go, I have to quit. I can't see. Um, and this is really a problem. And she was like, she took her glasses off and she handed me her sunglasses and said, use mine. And I was like, I hate you right now. <laughs> you, just took away, you took away my excuse for quitting. Damn you. Um, so, yeah, so that was the first kind of really stupid one that I did. And then it then it just sort of cascaded from there. Now, I've, I, you, you talked about, first off, the first marathon you did and how it turned into something that you was like last minute, like, oh, yeah, let's just go ahead and do this. Were you yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. were you training for these things at this point or, or, or what, what was your fitness level like before you decided, eh, why not? So the very first one that I, that I ran, I did not train at all. I had not run, I don't think it other than like in high school when they make you do like the mile run kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. I maybe had run like a 10 K I think actually. Um, but my fitness level was, was pretty high. Yeah. Um, I, I was doing a lot of other, um, kind of gnarly stuff, a lot of rock climbing, a lot of beach volleyball, a lot of cliff diving and just motorcycle racing. And like, I was in pretty good shape and I was working out, you know, six, seven days a week, just not running. Um, which is what convinced me I could do it. I'm like, ah, it's just, it's just another thing. Just go do it. Do it. Turns, out, turns out it's not. It's not just <laughs> you know, it's funny when Michael was describing all the things he was doing, you know, that just sounds like the dream that we all have. Like, oh, I'm going to do some, some rock climbing, some beach volleyball, motorcycle racing, motorcycle racing, that sort of thing. You were really kind of living the dream. Back in the yeah, day, it was, in California. It was, uh, 
it was a good time to be in Southern California and uh, not have a job and kids and responsibilities and not be worrying about college and just, I, I was just fucking off having a blast. <laughs> just go what you do. Tur- what tur- you turns out do. it's hard to make a career out of it. <laughs> Is, was there a spot on your resume that like covers a certain number of years, Mike, where you're like, it just what says were you doing? F-O. Yeah, yeah, fucking off. That's right. what I mean. well, So I actually, uh, it's funny. I, I didn't even start college till I was like 23 years old. Yeah. Um, because I had, I was fucking off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I never had to worry about the resume gap because I just started my resume after I graduated there you college. Go. I just didn't tell everybody I graduated late, you know? <laughs> so I was, it was, it was, it was a good move. No, I, I think everybody needs some fuck off time in their lives, right? Yeah. And uh, you get to kind of pick when you're going to do it. And some people have the the proverbial midlife crisis and other people, you know, find it, you know, after they retire, it's like, oh, let's go crazy. I, I think everyone needs it. I'm glad I got mine out of the way early because it let me get focused on other stuff. How do you think people best can do the fuck off time after the responsibilities like what's the most responsible way you think mike that we all can incorporate a little fuck up or a fuck off time into our lives (laughs) so that's a good question so i think um so i think one one way would be to kind of let people in your life know hey i'm doing this like i i I need to go do this Mm -hmm. everyone needs to cut me slack and not judge me back off i'm fucking off exactly yeah exactly whatever whatever that means to you right whether it's going out and banging everybody that you want to bang or or you know drinking heavily or just ears just perked up the first one <laughs> <laughs> but so i think you, you kind of if, if you're sort of upfront about hey it's it's my time it's yeah. kind of my time to get a little wild and and i and i want some help with it um i think that's that's probably the, the critical uh component in my mind um at, at, at later dates i also think if you're smart you can do it in a way that maybe is a little safer than the the dumb stuff I was doing. Um, and I, I think you, the, the kid thing exacerbates it considerably. I don't, I don't know that it's a great thing to do when your kids are five, but right. you know, if your kids are past the point where you're, they're able to kind of, if something did go upside down, right. they, they could still survive. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I would say I, I'm kind of doing that again now with all the stuff that I, I'm, I've got going on. You know, my kids aged out and they're all doing their own thing. And and uh, it's now I have a lot more capacity to travel the world and get involved in all kinds of stupid shit. Yeah. So the, the running thing, you, you do all these crazy runs and they get progressively more, more insane as you, as you continue to kind of explore the world. And then at some point you discover wine. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. so so it turns out the, the fuck off period and partying go, go hand in hand. They, they, they kind of do go together. Yeah. They how, how do they say really good bedfellows? They pair. Um, they pair well. Yes. <laughs> well done, sir. There you well go. Done. They do pair well. So so I I have always been passionate about wine. Um, probably about the same time, about twenty two, twenty three years old. My I never drank wine, and my dad had been to Italy and he had brought home this, this old bottle of wine that someone had given him as a gift. And, um, and he said, Hey Mike, I got this wine and it's old and old wine is good. You want to drink it? I'm like, no. no. He goes, come on. So I'm like, all right. And we, we, <laughs> we decided we were going to smoke cigars with it. So we went in the garage <laughs> and we poured the wine in this red solo cup and it was a 1975 Gatinara. I remember it vividly. Yeah. And, uh, 
I remember putting my nose in the cup and then tasting it and going, oh, shit. That's why people care about this stuff. And so that kind of led me on a just continual journey of exploration. And then, uh, you know, I started getting more serious about it. Now I'm on deck to become the 59th American to qualify as a master of wine. Like how do you okay? So what what is what is a master's fifty nine Americans that have or fifty eight before you? You could be the fifty yeah. ninth American to be a master of wine. What does it take to be a master of wine? An enormous amount of douchery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. There we go. <laughs> you, you you basically so there's a there's an institute of masters of wine. It's based in London, and um, there's about four hundred and twenty in the world. Actually, there are two more got made this year. They just announced it like two days ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, you essentially, you first convince the Institute that you should be considered as a candidate. Right. Um, and so if they accept you as a candidate, uh, then there's a, steer, a series of tests that you have to pass. Um, so I passed the first test, no problem. The second test I passed the written part, but there's a three day blind tasting component where you taste a bunch of wines blind over three days and you write sure. a paper about each one. And I have now failed that four years in a row. So <laughs> I, I am cautious. Last year, there were 115 people in the world took the, the tasting exam and eight of them passed. So, wow. I mean, I mean, good company failing, but it's, it's not an, it's not an insignificant amount of effort. Um, I'm, I'm kind of making light of it, but yeah, I put an enormous amount of effort over probably the last 10 years trying to get here. So Dang. I don't recommend it. It's kind of like running. Like if someone yeah. goes, oh, I want to get deep into ultra running. You're like, no, you don't. No, it's, no, you don't want to do that. It's not for you. Just, just it's, keep doing what you're doing. Let's say, I'd say the same thing about getting so, deep into wine. So right. it begs the question, do they have a master beer type thing? You know, there is a, there is a, a certification called a Cicerone um, for beers. And I think there's two levels i think you can be like an apprentice and then like a certified cicerone i don't believe there's a master um huh. cicerone title but yeah there is yeah if you dig deep enough you can find a certification for anything i'm actually i'm gonna make one, you need to make I, one. Yeah. ironically i i am a, a certified international tea master you're and, what, what, wait you're, you're a tea master as well i'm a tea master he's a master of teabagging yeah that's pretty. Yeah. That's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, so I, I accidentally became an international tea master. I my my kids when I first was were studying, I would like you know sniff and I would tell them, "Hey, go get a glass of wine out of the fridge for me." By the way, they were teenagers; they weren't right. like four. Um, just go pour me a glass of wine out of the one of the bottles in the fridge. Don't tell me what it is. Bring it to me, and yeah. I'd smell it. And they were curious; they wanted to smell it too, but I wouldn't let them drink. And so my my daughter said, um, "Hey, can we?" Is, I like tea. I drink tea. Can, can, is there a tea sommelier program? Can I be a tea sommelier? And I go, I don't know. Let's fucking see. Yeah. So I looked it up and, and turns out there was. So we went down and we, I did it with my son and my daughter, um, two of my three kids, and we all became tea sommeliers. <laughs> <laughs> and so the guy goes, the guy goes, hey, um, we have this tea master program. Like it's another set of curriculum and another kind of tasting sort of thing. Do you want to do that? And I go, I don't know, kids, do you want to do it? They're like, sure, why not? So the three of us did it. And for my son was the youngest tea master in the world. He was like 14. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Can we go back to wine for a second? And sure. we'll, we'll get we'll get to running. We're, yeah, we're getting off on some weird tangents. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to running at some point. Hang on, people. You're just like this is a running podcast, not a wine I, podcast. If I were your, you know, if you were told me and I was your kid, you say, "Hey, go to the fridge and get me a glass of wine." I'd be like, "Okay, watch this." So I'd pour a little bit of wine, then I'd put like a little splash of milk in it, maybe a little Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> See what dad thinks about that. Yeah. It, is, it is entirely possible that that was going on. That's really screwed with dad. Son. My son would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. just to mess with you. So what you were saying? So, so, so you know, up until you have that great glass of wine, bottle of wine with your dad, you're probably what Boone's farming at that point. Oh, just, not even that, dude. I live in Southern California. Like we we grew up drinking like Mexican beer and tequila and there Long you go. Island iced teas. You know that like that was partying. So the most amount of alcohol for the least amount of cost, right? Right, right. So so Mike Jurgen at that point, if someone were to come to him and say. Oh, this has hints of apricots and an oaky finish. You'd be like, "Shut the fuck up!" This tastes Dude, my like my friends and I would have, we'd have beat his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I was a punk rock skate kid. Like everybody with the rough crowd. If some guy came and started doing that, we would have rat packed him. Was there a moment though when you're like, as you get more and more interested, you have that great bottle of wine with your dad, and you're like, "Okay, there's something to this," and you get farther and farther along in your in your wine sippingness. Was there some point where you're like, oh, shit, there is a hint of apricots in this? Yeah, there, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I, what's funny is, is like, you know, um, we talk about my friends and a lot of my friend group is, you know, I've known since I was in high school yeah. and, and uh, they could care less. <laughs> you know, so I'm trying to share this passion with my friends. They're like, yeah, we don't care. We don't, will you shut up about the apricot? Like, we don't care. Like, pass the tequila. Right. Like, who eats apricots anyway? <laughs> like, uh, what's an apricot? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> okay, contrast the worlds now for us. I can imagine the, the, the running, especially the ultra marathon world and the wine world are two entirely different worlds that probably would not mix with most people. Uh, maybe. I mean, I think the ultra marathon people that I know generally speaking as a group are pretty big drinkers. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's definitely, do you guys know Lewis Escobar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Lewis has a, um, a, a race he runs called born to run, um, which sort of celebrates uh Caballo Blanco. Yeah. Um, and that is like, I mean, they're, they're drinking the whole the whole run. I mean, it's just it's like Burning Man meets Ultra. It's the funnest race I've ever run. It's just awesome. But um, but back to the wine and marathons. There's actually a bunch of literally wine marathons. Um, so I ran one in Alsace, France, where you run through like 17 medieval villages and then the vineyards between the villages, and then there's 12 food and wine pairings along the way. Oh my god! Oh wow! It's awesome. And basically everyone gets in costume and then sprints to the first stop. And then you stop and you have Pinot Blanc and foie gras and there's a band playing and you just sort of everyone dances around for five minutes and then you run to the next one. So that that one's a blast. And then the, there's one in Bordeaux uh, that's big. I did it a couple, couple of years, 2019, I think I did it. And yeah. there was like eight or 9,000 people and you run you run through all the Bordeaux chateaus and you drink. And that's the only, the only race that I didn't make the cutoff time at the half. Like they have a cutoff time, and we were busy. I didn't know there was a cutoff time. I was partying and jogging, and I was wearing a, a tutu and so, costume and stuff. 
And uh, we got to the halfway point and the lady's like, you have to stop. And I go, no, I don't go fuck yourself. And she's like, you didn't make the time cut off. I go, there's a time, why? There's a time cut off. What? Party at the chateau's like, why is there a time cut off? And she's like, sorry, American, go over there. And so I didn't get to run the second half of the race. But um, yeah, so, there's one in there's one in Mendoza, Argentina that that I tried to run last year or two years ago, but COVID kind of put a, a crimp in that. So there's more there's more wine and running than you huh. might think. Is, the, is there such a thing as a wine mile? Oh, I was going to bring that up. No, because remember when we interviewed Zach Bevan? Zach Bevan is the course record holder for Strolling Jim yes. and an incredible athlete. I think he made uh, the top 10 ultra runners of the year. He does a thing called the Rosé Mile where it's, you know, because uh-huh. like a beer mile is, you know, four beers, you know, you drink a beer each oh, quarter I'm mile. well familiar with the beer mile. Yeah. So, so this one is you get a you get a bottle of rosé and then it's a glass of rosé. You got to finish the whole bottle, Ooh. so you just break it into oh, four glasses, shit. and then you run you wow, run a that's mile. A, that's it. I mean, I guess it's on the one hand, it's less fizzy than beer, yes. right? So yeah. it'd be easier to to chug and run, uh, but it's way more alcohol. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get shit faced after afterwards. Yeah, um, I. <laughs> Have not tried a wine mile, but it's you, a brilliant idea. You need to do I, that. That's wine definitely going to happen. Yeah, you got to make that. You got to make that mile. a thing, and and make sure you invite Zach Bevan to be a part of the first wi- official actually, wine mile. We actually did a thing a few years ago. Um, one of my running buddies got hit by a car, oh, really bad actually. Yeah. Um, broke his back, broke his neck, was in the hospital for a long, long time, and so um, he couldn't run. Um, he's actually back running again yeah. now, uh, and putting up marathons again, which is great. But at the time he wanted to go do something exciting, but his leg wasn't working too well. So we came up with the wine marathon, which the wine marathon is you have to have 26.2 glasses of wine at 26.2 different wine bars in at the same day. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> so we, we got a group of people together and we went to New York and um, we mapped this route out with where we went to like six different neighborhoods and did four or five. Started 7 a.m. in the morning. All right. right. Yeah. So we started at eight we started and it was raining cats and dogs. And it was, people still talk about that, but it was like the most fun day. Um, what happens is, is you, you're kind of pacing yourself. So yeah, you're yeah, yeah. for the first like 12 hours, you're kind of like, eh. Are we really drinking? Right. And then there's there's a cliff. Just, <laughs> and then it all goes downhill really rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah around 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 mile twenty or right. bar twenty. Yeah. <laughs> shit starts to go downhill. But it, it was a, it was a good day. Wow. So it seems like running's been a big part of your life ever since that first marathon. And are there things that you've found in running? Just, you know, the the discipline of the sport, hanging out with other people, just the community that have helped you in your other endeavors into the wine world? Well, so probably the biggest thing is when I went with, um, uh, I went to the Himalayas to run a marathon in the Himalayas just because I thought that would be bitching. Yeah. And while while I was there, um, started the wine industry in the kingdom of Bhutan. So, so. So how did like okay you got to give us more than that you can't this is not a reader's digest type of headline story here I just I just think I dropped that little nugget right in the, in the right so so you're going to the Himalayas you're gonna go yeah. run a marathon in the Himalayas because why not did they not yeah. know wine did you bring a bottle and you're like hey guys I don't know if you're no, heard this what, stuff it's so wine 
so Bhutan is this little country tucked in between Tibet and Nepal. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, it, they make, they grow some of the world's best crops there and odd verticals like cardamom and red rice. Yeah. Um, and, and poppies. This, this, oh, never mind. Yeah. No, they, they have this weird, um, they, they have gross national happiness is how they measure their economy. They don't measure gross domestic product. So it's I like, know. it's known as the happiest place on earth and it's yeah. hard to get into. It's a closed system. Anyway, so they opened it up for people to come and run this marathon there. And a bunch of us went, including Scott Jurek, which I have a funny Scott Jurek story from that trip too. Ooh. Um, but um, so we're over there and I'm looking at all these crops and I just assume that there's wineries. I just assume it because yeah. everybody makes wine. So I kept asking everybody like, hey, where's the wineries? I want to visit them. And um, everyone's like, what are you talking about? And so we ended up having dinner with a bunch of government people that wanted to meet the crazy foreigners that came to the run a marathon in the Himalayas. Yeah. And I end up at this table with these senior guys and I go, Hey, where's your wineries? I want to visit them. And he, they go, we don't have any. And so I get like incensed. I'm like, you guys are totally screwing up. Like this is, yeah. how could you not have wineries? This is how dare you? Spot. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. Literally. How dare you? And um, that just led to, more and more conversations and i kept telling them like you need to do this you need to do this and finally the country's like yeah we want to do this and i go you should totally do it and um they said will you partner with us and do it with us and i was like are you kidding of course i will partner with you to do this this is amazing so i have eight vineyards in the kingdom of bhutan we're trying to scale it to about two thousand acres right now we'll make our first wine this year oh my goodness they're making a documentary about it it's wow like, <laughs> so yeah Wine's taken me places that, and wine and running have taken me places I never thought I would go. Okay, you got to give us a Scott Jurek story before we go any further. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, the, so we're, it was at that exact same dinner that I was talking about. So yeah. I was sitting next to Scott and Jenny. Yeah. Um, and they they had just had their first daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Ava, I think is her name. Yeah. Um, and so Jenny's like holding Ava on, on, on her lap and Scott's sitting kind of where, uh, next to me. And he goes to the bathroom. And so I'm sitting there and, and I, you guys can't tell by looking at me. I'm, I'm a, I'm a stocky dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't look yeah. like a marathon guy. Yeah. And this, this Bhutanese official comes over from one of the other tables and like starts effusively shaking my hand. Like, Oh my God, this is such an honor for us to have you in our country running. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's really great. <laughs> and I, and I look and I see Jenny's cracking up and I go, Oh, holy shit. Oh. They think I'm Scott. <laughs> so, so hey, roll with I, it. I roll with it. Start, I immediately am like, own it. I'm like, absolutely. Do you need to autograph some stuff? Do you want to get a selfie with me? Oh so, God. <laughs> so the dude does this for like two minutes and then he leaves just as Scott's come, comes back and we are dying laughing. And he's like, uh, what does what's going on? Did Actually, I miss something? Like, <laughs> Mike is you. <laughs> That's great. Right now, yeah. there's some guy in Bhutan that thinks like, you know, Scott Jurek invented the wine industry here. I don't know if you guys are aware <laughs> of that. I hope he's got a pit like a selfie of me on his wall. Like the time right. I met Scott. That's me. Scott Jurek right there. He's the wine guy. He oh started the whole wine industry here. Yeah, that's that's, that's fascinating that they didn't have any wine or any 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 vineyards there. I know. I think it was because um, well, if you think about the way the wine spread around the world, it was a the Roman army right would bring it with them when and they marched because they if they needed to purify the water. Marco Polo brought it to 
uh, a lot of places on the Silk Road and a lot of places it just grew naturally. Well, Bhutan yeah. was isolated because it's in the fucking Himalayas. Right. Um, so nobody ever went there and they didn't have any indigenous varietals. So they just never made wine. They actually make a ton of rice wine there. Um, so hmm. they, I mean, they're big drinkers. They love drinking, um, but they just didn't have grapes. So, so we're fixing that. What type of grapes do you, do you send to a place that's never grown grapes before? We're, that is, you hit the problem on the head, my friend. We're figuring that out. I have, I have 13 different grapes, five white and eight red growing yeah. at different altitudes, anywhere from 2000 feet up to about 9,000 feet. And we're trying to see which ones thrive with the idea of we take the ones that thrive, double down on those and then get rid of the ones that aren't thriving. And what I anticipate is probably what we'll end up with is some understanding of the microclimates that says, you know, down here, Cabernet grows really, really well up here. Riesling goes really, really well. And I don't need them all to work. I actually think a bunch of them will not work. I need like two or three to work. Yeah. Um, did you and, do did you do like soil samples at each location and test them and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, we did a ton of analysis yeah. um, with what we could, but like you don't have weather data. Bhutan doesn't have right. weather stations. So right. it's like how much rainfall? And the, you talk to the locals, they're like, I don't know, it rains a little bit here and it rains a lot over there. And you're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then you look at the soil and you know the tectonic forces that form the Himalayas. Um, created like this radical soil diversity. So you have granite soils and clay soils and big like veins of iron and you have alluvial runoff from the mountain, the rivers carrying shit down from the glaciers and spreading it all over. So it's even the soil, like you walk 10 feet in any direction, you get five different soil types. So at the end of the day, we're like, eh, just grip it and rip it. Let's see what happens. Wow. And that's what we did. And what's interesting too is there's a lot more to it than just planting some some vines like you're like i'm gonna put some vines in my suitcase i'm gonna head over to bhutan and i'm just gonna go ahead and put some in because like there's an invasive species those those vines don't grow naturally there they have no natural predators i mean you've seen it before they look look at the american south where they brought kudzu from korea and they're like oh this will be great and and there's places they can't get rid of you can't they burn it and it still comes back how how much is that into the game of making sure that you're not bringing an invasive species into a cl- into an area that never could 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 handle that? Yeah, you mean the the risk of Mike Jurgens fucking up the happiest country on the planet? Yes, yeah. I didn't want to put yeah. it that way, but I just wanted you know since you <laughs> oh, did no, go I, for I it. Believe I I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I do not want to be that guy, but I we. We went into this really good, great partnership with the country. The country really wants this to be successful because um, they, they're they built around agriculture. And so they're sure. looking for higher value agriculture crops. And you know mm. what's bottom line sells for a lot more than a bag of rice. Yeah. Um, they also want to showcase kind of the beauty and uniqueness of Bhutan and wine expresses a sense of place if it's done right. And it's brand Bhutan. You know, they want people in London you know, sitting in a steak place and paying 300 euros for a brilliant bottle of Bhutanese Cabernet that says Bhutan on the front. And they, you know, it, so it aligns with a lot of their values. Mm-hmm. And so we we went into a very symbiotic partnership with with the government. And so I got the Ministry of Agriculture and Forest working with me like hand in glove to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and we were extremely careful about what we brought in and how phytosanitary it was and we quarantined it and then we 
our first vineyards, we actually quarantined the entire vineyards to make sure. And, you know, now that we're, you know, five, well, yeah, the vines are in their fifth year. Um, we're at the point where the sort of the handcuffs are off and it's like, okay, we, we, we're okay with this. Now let's scale. Let's see how fast we can see. Scale. You should have went for a known quantity cash crop like weed. That stuff grows <laughs> anywhere. It's just great. I mean, you know, no problem. Also, also lies with the happiest place. Right. See, there, there you go. <laughs> um, when the book, Michael Jurgen and how he fucked up the happiest place on earth comes out. We're not going to talk about it on the podcast. We're going to be like, no, no, no. We're not going to mention it like no, even as a no. thing. We know that guy. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I swear to God, like it is, I, I laugh about it, um, but it is an enormous, like emotional burden that I carry around. It's like, I've been entrusted with this. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like, I, I worry about it. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't get a lot of anxiety, but I spend a lot of time thinking about how to not fuck it up. Well, here's the great thing. If you do fuck it up, you can just be like, Hey, remember me, Scott Jurek. I fucked up. The, I fucked up Bhutan, you know? And so the book will come out and say how Scott Jurek fucked up the happiest right, place yeah, on earth. Yeah. You know, that is spectacular. By the way, Scott Jurek, um, we've asked to have him on the podcast. He's never responded to an email. Um, so, so it's okay. He's, this is not going to ruin our chance of getting Jurek on. He's not coming on the adventure jogger. It is not on his radar. Although I do have a great story that Carl Meltzer shared with me, um, that the reason why Scott, Scott could have gone a little faster oh, yes. on yeah, the Appalachian yeah. trail when he was trying to set the speed record in which he did, he could have gone faster, but he was having such a hard time finding food that met his dietary requirements. Cause he's like his crazy vegan. He was shitting right. all over the trail. Like he had to stop all the time and just, <laughs> just blowing. Like there's, there's Scott's innards are all over the Appalachian trail. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the truth. Right. So he would just have eaten the occasional, you know, Yes. Pizza. yes he'd have been fine he'd have been yeah. fine but the, the speed record have would a be, slice it would be it. yeah no no problem whatsoever that's a lot wow. of stuff that you've done in a very short amount of time what wow, like like so many people would, would, wouldn't even think to do these things like what is it mike that motivates you that that fuels your desire to, to just to to live life to the fullest let's do crazy yeah i think uh you know i spent a lot of time going up the ladder in corporate America um, and, you know, chasing stuff. Yeah. And I kind of realized eventually that that didn't make me happy. And what made me happy was doing epic shit with cool people. And so I, I literally probably about, uh, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, I said, you know what? If it's not epic shit with cool people, I'm not doing it. Yeah. And, and that's been the mantra ever since. And then with that, I also believe that the universe kind of takes you where you are meant to go. Yeah. But we're just too blind to see it a lot of the time. And so I started, it's almost like that movie. Yes, man. Remember yeah, that movie? Yeah, yes, man. Yeah, with Jim yeah. I kind of adopted that. Like if the universe presented to something, I was going to lean in on it and see what happened. And, uh, and sometimes it worked out awesome. And sometimes it <laughs> didn't work out at all. Um, but I got to do all this stuff and that's kind of like, why I went to Bhutan in the first place. Hey, Marathon and the Himalayas, let's do it. Yeah. Hey, you, you guys should have a wine industry here. All right, I'll build it. Yeah, why not? Like, um, so, I, you know, that those two kind of concepts of doing epic shit with cool people and, and leaning in when the universe puts something in front of you, even if it's weird or scary or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, it's 
I've gotten to do some cool shit. That's really interesting, Mike, because I think there is a safety net in security that so many people are afraid to pull out from under them. And society does create and reinforce that safety net. You know, you get that corporate job and you get those things and you think that, okay, I've got everything beneath me. I don't have to live too far outside of my comfort zone. I can just kind of live in this safe space. You at some point pulled the, ripped the safety net out from, yeah. from, from under you. That could not have been very easy to do. Um, I had help. Um, from the California family court system, <laughs> which I, I basically, I went through, I was married for 11 years yeah. and then I spent 13 years trying to get divorced in the state of California and Jeez. spent millions of dollars in attorney's fees and went through just hell trying to, you know, retain the rights to my children and everything yeah. else. And, and that was really where I, I kind of went back and, had to do a lot of soul searching about like what's important and the money thing was not um it, it was this you know this idea of living a full life whatever that means to whoever yeah and and i said i'm gonna do that what's ironic is that my level of success in every aspect of my life went way way up after i adopted that kind of philosophy really in, in every way yeah um, and I think there's another piece to this, too, that we you talk about people not wanting to pull the safety in. I think there's also this we attribute judgment of good and bad to stuff. Yeah. And and then that is like the worst possible thing that I think you could do that. I think that hinders you a lot. And I was a really good friend of mine. I talked to her yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, she was a, a senior partner at a, at a big firm and, and I ended up not working out for her. And she she left. Uh, actually, she got promoted into a, a big role and then wasn't successful at it. And so she left. She ended up yeah. having to leave. So it was like this great promotion followed by this disastrous, you right. know, severing and then not having a job and then trying to find something. And, and anyway, through a series of consequences, all of which could be like, oh, this is good or this is terrible. She started her first day as uh, the CEO of a publicly traded company yesterday. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and, so, and so it's it's. It's like, you know, and she called me to say, I did my first day. It was so amazing. And I'm like, that's great. But all throughout it, she was attributing like, oh, this is the worst. Right. Oh, this is the grass. Oh, this yeah. is the worst. And if she hadn't done any of that, if she just lived it and ex accepted what the universe was bringing to her, she would have ended up in the same place, but she would have had a lot more fun doing it. Okay. You, yeah, you, you, there are a lot of interesting things that you just said that we need to take a minute and, and I mean, unpack. I, I, this is, I get geeky about philosophically geeky about this shit. Like, okay. So, times. so you, you strike me as, as someone who has, who has read more than one book about Buddhism. <laughs> I, I have read more than one book about Buddhism, but Bhutan's a Buddhist country. And, yeah. and I think, um, it really spending time there is sort of what hammered some of those concepts home for me. And I don't know that I a hundred percent agree with all of them, but um, this no good, no bad philosophy, I think really resonated with me a lot. Let's talk about that for a second. No good, no bad. It's open that because that, that there's a yeah, lot this idea to that. Of like, so I'll, I'll put it in running context, right? So let's, let's say you're, you know, you're, you're running along and all of a sudden you, you, you know, you pull a hamstring and you have to DNF, right? You know, and you've, it's the race that you've trained for and everything else. And so you're like, oh my God, you know, this is terrible. 
Um, but it just happened to be the race, like the Chinese race, where the storm came in and everybody died. Right. right. So the fact that you DNF, like you, you might have been up there with everybody else. Right. Right. And, and so I have tried to, um, when when things get put in front of me, whether they're, I try to not perceive them as being positive or negative at the time. It's just a thing. And and running, you know, is, a, is another piece of that, like. Like you're in the middle of a race and you're like, I'm out of water. Okay. Let's see where this takes me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What what do we do? You know, maybe, and maybe in that case you slow down to conserve water. And, um, and because you slowed down, it gives you the, the, you know, the stamina that you need to complete. And if you had continued going out fast, you you might, you don't know. That's the whole point. You don't know. And, And so because you don't know, it's a waste of emotional energy to try to say, Oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is great. Like you don't know what's going to happen next. Okay. Wow. We're going to go deep here. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think maybe attachment to ideas, to desires for, let's just, let's just use running for, for a race. You have, you have an attachment to, I want this time. This is my a goal. This is my B goal. This is how I want the day to go. Do you think, in running and in life, attachment to desired outcome, various other things blind us to what the universe is presenting for us? I 100% agree with that. I think anytime you get outcome specific on anything, then you're, you're tying your success to an arbitrary statistic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think the running... I never work. I'm not a good runner, by the way. Yeah. I, that. I never have a goal. My goal is, is have a good time. Um, I, I don't even have a goal to finish, to be honest. Like really? if I go out, and I, like the, 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 the Bordeaux Marathon, they, would, they didn't let me keep going. But I had such a great day and I had such amazing stories from that day. And we had so much fun. Like, I love that. I would do that again in a heartbeat. So That's I right. am... Being outcome dependent. By the way, I'm opening a bottle of wine. Do it. Ah. It was that, it was so that you, time. So you just, kind of, you just kind of approach it and say, uh, well, let's let's just see how the day unfolds. Let's just see how the day unfolds. And I I definitely, like one of my friends is a big ultra guy, and he's always trying to do like fastest known times, and he's really worried about his splits, and he shows up, you know, with fucking shit written all over his arm, and he's <laughs> staring at it. I'm like, dude, how are you having fun? Like, right here running this beautiful space with a bunch of other cool people, like – like you're staring at your wrist <laughs> and congratulations, but no one gives a shit. Yes. It's meaningless. I have said this a billion times on this podcast, Mike, all of this is meaningless. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit. And by the way, no matter how fast you ran it or no matter what sort of a record you just made, there's a, there's a better one. You know, someone else has done something cooler. Right. Right. And given enough time, nobody will remember it anyway. Yeah, it was like the, the I was looking at your show, like just trying to get a sense of what kind of stuff we might be talking about. Yeah. Who are these jackasses? Thinking, yeah. <laughs> who are these fucking guys? And, uh, I was looking at the dude who, who ran the 100 miler and then was like, I'm going to do a dragon a tire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, you know what? That guy didn't get a, a, a PR probably, no, but no. he had an amazing time. Mm hmm. An right? epic story for sure. Yeah. Right. And so how great is that? Like he, he had an, a way better day and has a way better story than anybody who PR'd in that. And that one. 
You're right. You're so right. And, what? and I, I think that's, I, yeah, we need the Olympics and yeah, we need to figure out who's the best is at stuff. But when it comes to ultras, I think that should just be, we shouldn't even time it. Like just go out and have a, have a day. Yeah. Do you, do you wear a watch when you run? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Not always. Um, I try to, I try to not like think about time. Because I know it's always going to be a shitty time. <laughs> just don't look at that number. Yeah. Just don't look at the number. But sometimes I wear a watch to like track um, more like like stats on on you know um, pulse rate and stuff. Yeah. I've experimented with different kind of approaches for how to be a better runner, and you know, there's the I forget the guy who who um, I actually met him, uh, the dude who who had the whole thing about. Um, keeping your pulse rate really, really low. Oh yeah, uh, 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 Phil, Phil, Buffon, uh, Buffon, Matt. No, yeah, Matt Maffleton. Maffleton, yeah, that's what it is. Maffleton, yeah. yeah, he's like yeah. a music guy. We we ended up like geeking out about music. I met him somewhere and ended up hanging out with the guy. And I was like, oh, you're interesting. I might read your book. And and so I, you know, that that would be one reason why I might wear a watch. But it's not for time and it's not for distance. I'm I'm having fun. That's what that's what it's all about. All right, baby steps. You're, you're giving people a lot here, and it, and, it, and it takes... Look, everyone says they can't run a marathon. It's bullshit. You, everybody on this planet could run a marathon, and everybody should, just to prove to themselves that they can. And and then the people that think a marathon is the highest level that you could run, no. No. You could run 100 miles. You can run 200 miles. You can run 300 miles. You can run eight days, whatever, yeah. You can run as much as you want, and anybody can do it. And it requires... Well, but not anyone. If you're in a wheelchair, you probably can't do it. Right, right. Like, like sort of, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. It doesn't matter how old you are. And it's highly rewarding. Oh, for sure. Because you get to do, you get to find out who you truly are at mm-hmm. that point. When you strip away all the bullshit and you're miserable and you are having to problem solve, you get to figure out who you truly are in those moments. When you're when you're lost on a glacier in the middle of yes! Antarctica near the South Pole <laughs> and you think you're going to die, and they've told you when stuff starts going numb, you're in trouble, and half your body's numb. Like, yeah. Is that a polar bear? What is that? Yeah, <laughs> that, is, that, that is where you find out. It's, it's time... It's time to grip it and rip it or not. You have to have a whole other respect for the guys and gals that do the Iditarod uh, trail race where they're dragging a sled. Like, not the not the dog one, the foot they, one. They drag it. Yes. Right. That's the point. Like, I a ran pulk. 26 miles in the cold. These guys run 1,500 miles in the cold. Like, the, it's orders of magnitude more difficult than what I did. And so, anyone can do this. We just got to get out of our comfort zone. We got to stop babying ourselves, Mike. We got to stop babying ourselves. So, so uh, in Bhutan, they they do a lot of like trekking in the Himalayas. Yeah. And so they had this idea to create the hardest ultra in the world um, on this one trail that's called the Snowman Trail. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think it's 155 miles and it's over five peaks. Um and the peaks are range from sixteen to eighteen thousand feet, Ooh, <laughs> and you run over Lordy. five of them. Yeah, over over five days. Um, and so th- this race was supposed to be the uh, the initial um, race was supposed to be in October of twenty twenty, and then COVID happened and they postponed it. But I hooked my buddy um, Lewis 
um, Escobar up and he was, he was the trail. He was the run director for it. We, it was all set to go. Yeah. And I was like fired up to go do it. And COVID happened. Man. But Damn. Damn it, I, man. I'm look, looking forward to if, if that thing comes back up again, that's, that's probably the dumbest thing that you could do because you're, <laughs> it's, you have high altitude pulmonary edema combined with, um, freezing to death combined with snow leopards combined with just bring you know, a bottle no of wine support. and some cheese you'll That's be all fine you need is wine and cheese just put it put it in your bag put it in your in your ultimate directions vest just a little hard bottles, salami it'll be bottles good. up front was there was there a race mike where you had a moment of just utter desperation it was all going wrong it was you're miserable did you have a moment of clarity did you get like a low spot is this where all this clarity came from? Was was it was a race, or or where did you, where did you find this way of thinking? I mean, I, I definitely think long long runs give you the opportunity to strip away a lot of the shit that gets in the way of you thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had, I'm sure, like like many people that have run long races, I've had numerous moments of you know, kind of flow state or clarity where, where you're, you're just able to think about um, not all the other bullshit, you know, that we think about on a daily basis, like the electric bill and your sister-in-law is a bitch or whatever it happens to be. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I could put my finger on one experience that was the life changing epiphany moment, but I've had numerous ones like the the Antarctica one. There was another time I talked about running the Boston marathon. I actually got stress fractures in my, my one foot at mile six. And, uh, so my foot started killing me. And I remember sitting there going like, okay, this is a problem. Um, what are you going to do about it? Well, you can quit or you can try to finish in the best way that you can. And, and, uh, and I, the guy I was running with, I said, go on without me. I don't know if I'm going to make it. We'll see what happens. And I just started doing the, I'm going to try to make it to the next medical tent. And I got to the next medical tent and there was a line and I was like, shit. All right. right, Let me see if I can. Next one. And I just next medical tented my way all the way to the finish. And then I got across the line and I uh, passed out face first onto the concrete and spent the night in the hospital and have a big old scar that you can't see right here from, from, uh, from doing it. So that's that's fine. I I have a, a nice little memento of the, the, the Boston Marathon, but that was kind of another one of those things where you're like, okay, like, what are you going to do? Um, are you, are you going to find the, the mental strength to just keep going? Or are you going to just pussy out and, and not? And so by the way, both of those are fine options. Yeah. So all this clarity goes back to the fucking off days. That's what it is. That's, that's where it comes awesome. from. That's the root of it right there. It yeah. Really I think, is. you know, we all, the, the things that prevent us from, from living that kind of life in, in a lot of ways are worry mm-hmm. and worry is you're guessing about shit that might happen later. That yeah. You're going to then perceive as bad. So once you start, you stop worrying about stuff that might happen later and trying to figure out whether or not it might be bad. It just gives you the freedom to do whatever the fuck you want. It is interesting. And it goes back to the whole concept that I've, I've, I've talked with. I mean, I've interviewed, a Zen monk who is a runner who you know, talks about how the future doesn't exist, the past doesn't exist. There's just this present, this never ending valley of the present moment 
that I think we get so caught up in ignoring the present, blinding ourselves to what's actually happening right now because we're focused on what may have happened, which probably didn't happen the way we're thinking it did. It's it's yeah. our it's our mind's perception of past events or worry about something that may or may not happen in the future. Right. And and that to me is is we all do it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, do. shit, I, like uh, even right now with all the events going on in the Ukraine, you know, I was having a conversation with my son yesterday about like, hey, should we be worried about this? Like, yeah. is there World War Three? Is and I, and I was like, you know, it's something I'm thinking about, and I, I keep trying to remind myself that I don't know what's going to happen, and let's assume that there is World War Three. I'm just making this up. Yeah. Um, the world's going to be a different place. Is it going to be better or worse? I don't know. Like COVID, there's been a lot of really, I think, positive things without trying to attribute good or bad to it. But like people have found way better ways of living mm-hmm. and working remotely working, and spending yeah, more time with things, their yeah. families. And, and like there's been some cool shit that's happened as a result of COVID. You're so right. And I remember thinking this when we were kind of about six months into the pandemic is it boy did that force people to slow down when you mm-hmm. had parents like i gotta get the kids to soccer and i gotta get them here and i gotta go here and i gotta go here and i go here when you had no place to go it but forced yeah. you to slow down and take really inventory of what's around you and what's important because you no longer had the ability to drown yourself in constant stuff and constant events and constant doing this where you had to kind of slow down and go like okay this is my life i am home and I, you know, I'm spending quality time with the kids at home. Right. And, and so you, you step back and you go, okay, global pandemic. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And it's neither. Right. It's it, just a thing. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just a thing that is occurring and it has consequences. And those consequences, you know, impact our lives. And we get to choose how we respond to that. And yes, I people die. Yes. And I don't yeah. want to make light of that. And that's a terrible thing. Fortunately for me. I had COVID twice, by the way. Um, fortunately for me, nobody I know uh, or work with had any of those kind of repercussions. But right. I'm I'm assuming that you know the folks who did would maybe have a slightly different lens on this than I do, yeah. which is okay. But I have a feeling, by the way, we could talk to Mike forever and ever and ever, and so many things to uncover. The newsletter is drinking and knowing things. There's a book out as well, right? Is that that's in stores right now to get the the drinking and knowing things book? Yeah, actually, book book two just came out. Uh, nice, about three weeks ago. So, okay. yeah, if you're interested in learning about wine in a very non douchery sort of way, <laughs> you can sign up for my my newsletter, which is drinkingandknowingthings.com. Just put your email address in, and I'll send you a a little blurb every week to read, uh, or you can buy one or both of the books. I've actually written uh, seven, seven books on wine. Jesus. So you can, you can, I wrote a bunch of uh, wine novels about like the secret underground world of high stakes gambling on blind tasting competitions <laughs> run by the Chinese mafia. <laughs> this is the kind of weird shit I do when I'm like, just, Oh, Hey, the universe. Oh, let's go do this thing. Um, but, but yeah, if you go to drinkingandknowingthings.com, you can you can see you can sign up for the newsletter. There's links to all my books. Um, if you want to know what's going on with Bhutan Wine, butanwine.com or at Bhutan Wine, um, you can see pictures, and we kind of try to keep people abreast of it. Actually, there's a cool um, there's a Bhutanese movie that's nominated this year for best international film yeah. in the Oscars called The Yak in the Classroom, which I've been telling everybody to watch because it's 
a really cool like line of sight into what Bhutan is. Yeah. And uh, so if people are interested in finding out more, go watch that movie. Kind of like a spin on the bull in the China shop. But. Well, and, and you, you got to make sure you look real close because you'll see Scott Jurek. Right in that movie, he looks an awful lot like Mike Jurgen. I'm just saying that. <laughs> I, 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 These guys are spitting image. I just laugh about that. Like, dude, how did they think? How did they confuse you with me? Like, I am. I do not look like a runner. No, I look like I could carry a, a piece of furniture up some stairs. <laughs> Three guys moving company. He's one. Of, he's one of the guys. Yeah, yeah, dude. If you need help moving, I'm your I'm <laughs> I not set any PRs on the Appalachian Trail anytime <laughs> Mike Jurgen, thank you so much for taking some time and chatting with us on the Adventure Jogger. This is this has been a, a great time, and I, I I feel like we could have just kept going for another hour. This has been so much fun. So well, thanks for having me on, and uh, happy to come back anytime. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's why I cut it in an hour because then we have an excuse to have you on again. I'll, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Actually, well, next time I'll fly out to Tennessee. I'll bring some wine. And we'll, there you go. We'll, we'll, do it, we'll do it right. It's happening. This is happening. Get, uh, my agent, book this. Yes. <laughs> and I'm talking to my wife. Honey, book this. But, so we can make this actually, happen. I, with, 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 I am being, um, I, like, I travel all over the country um, for, for my day job. And so, uh, yeah, I, I was being in not insincere with that. Like if I find myself in Tennessee or near Tennessee, I'll totally come down yes, and hang out reach with you guys. Out. Well, reach we out do, we do have a winery here. So, oh my God. Every, yes. All 50 states have a winery. Yeah. I would love to come drink some Tennessee wine just yeah. to make fun of it. Oh, we're no, do it. <laughs> we're going to have a good time. This is happening, Mike. This is totally happening. Uh, I'm going to get you my contact info. So if you're in Tennessee, you're going to come and we're going to, we're going to experience the local wine scene. We're going to run a little bit. We'll do a podcast. It'll be a blast. We didn't even have to record it. We could just go have a good time. There you go. Know, that. Cool, yeah. dude, we just do epic shit with cool people. And then I think that's a the winner. Life, the life is good. That's a winner, Mike. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on. Namaste, my friends. Later. Are you going to take anything Mike said and apply that to your Silver Singles profile? I'm going to start drinking some wine. You need to start drinking yeah. some wine. Yeah. Remember the last time you had wine? Christina bought a bottle of wine. And one of the big ones, not like the standard bottle. A magnum. And the yeah. magnum bottle of wine, and we put that we, thing away. We put it away. Yeah. We got in so much trouble. she got trouble. mad. Oh, she got so mad when she it's came like, home. It's like eating her chocolates. Don't, don't mess with her wine, you know? <laughs> Here's what happens when Jeff comes over to the house. This is no joke. We, 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 we drink Christina's wine. Eat her chocolates. Eat her chocolates. And then you undermine... My authority with my oh, youngest daughter, daughter yeah, yeah. by telling her she can do whatever it's, she wants it, to do. It's okay. Grandpa Jeff says that's cool. Right. And then she's like, oh, well, dye Jeff your hair it's black. Cool. It's right. fine. Dye your hair your black. Hair, your room's a mess. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You know, it's it's okay. <laughs> why why do why do we even invite you over anymore? I, I don't know. It's all you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. Theadventurejogger.com. Back episodes, gear, new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, everybody. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search The Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.